we haven't done a podcast for a couple of times because there was Thanksgiving and then Jemima's got her house turned upside down. Yeah. I lost both my grandparents and um, my cat's in the hospital. There, there's been some things going on. So um, it's nice to be back. And thank you so much for being our first guest after our unplanned and unscheduled furlough. But yeah, to introduce us, my name is Whisper and my lovely co-host Jemima. And today our lovely guest is Ashley. How are you today, Ashley? Or this evening, actually, it should be. <laughs> I'm still I'm living in the morning. Good. I it life is good. good today. That is good to hear. Yeah. Life is good sometimes, huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it can be tough. It's funny. I was actually just thinking about coming on here because I'm a little out under the weather as well. And so I was just like, am I gonna be able to beat my peppy self <laughs> or my sometimes peppy self when I get on there? And Going through the holidays, I was thinking about that. There, I don't think there's anyone really. I've never met anyone that skirts through life without having some sort of bittersweet memories or sometimes just bitter memories attached to the holidays. And maybe even these last couple holidays we've had has been even tough, tougher, at least in the United States, where politics has gotten ugly in some people's families. And so there's a lot of emotions that are going on, especially when you're dealing with pain. Unfortunately, for me, the holidays is the anniversary of my brother passing. So there's always a melancholy that leads up to it. And so just remember that we're not trying to hit a goal as far as holiday happiness or outdo your neighbors with the bigger Christmas tree or whatever it might be that gets you feeling under pressure. The most important thing you need to do is just be gentle with yourself because the holidays bring up something for pretty much everybody in some way. I was just thinking about that because I was feeling a little bit bad that we missed a couple of shows. And I was like, we've been having a bit of a rough go. So, <laughs> yep. And it happens too. Absolutely. Life, yeah. Life is just one, are you fucking kidding me at a time, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. Totally. <laughs> so there's no rules. Do whatever you need to survive and get through and take care of yourself and your loved ones. That's my advice for today. <laughs> <laughs> for I, I, when I say my advice, I'm talking to myself. <laughs> I, I always am. Whenever I say something, it's because that sounds like I'm giving advice. I'm just talking to myself. Because <laughs> yep. I usually am the one who needs it the most. <laughs> That's actually a good point. I read this thing that said some people heal in public so others can heal in private. Mm. And huh. that's basically what we're all doing. Mm, yeah. Right. Is healing publicly so that other people can heal privately. Absolutely. That's Definitely. actually my motto. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> my, my motto is I recover out loud for those who suffer in silence. Oh, my gosh. I'm going to cry. That's good. That's really good. That's yeah. really good. I know That's you have quite important. a story, Ashley. So, Ashley, I worked with you for a while at the cafe. And that's how I got to know you a little bit. Tell us your story, because I know that you came from a good family and all that. I know that you had some drug use and stuff like that. So what kind of was the the leading up to, or how did you get into the whole drug scene and all that stuff? As you said, I grew up, I'm a minister's daughter in a small town. I always had a good family. I was a captain of the cheerleading squad, almost a straight A student. I had 12 college credits by the time I graduated high school. When I was 12 years old, I had my first drunk experience. One of the things that really led up to that was I realized that I could use my body to attract men specifically and to be able to really do that. I did a lot of partying. I did a lot of drinking. You know, I was just so hungry for that male attention I started using pain pills when I was 13 years old and, wow. Oh, wow. you know, and it was just that experimental phase for a really, well, for a couple of years. And then at 16, I started doing them like it became a routine. Wednesday nights, I would get high and then on the weekends, I'd get high and I'd drink. And then by the time I graduated high school, I was getting loaded about every night. College was one of those, I'm just going to try different things. Got myself into some potentially really scary situations. But then I got married. I dropped out of college. I got married. My oh, ex wow. How old were you? 19. Okay. 
Yeah. I was young. <laughs> yeah. And when I started dating um, my now ex-husband when we were 16. Okay. Uh, and, and, you know, that's what we did. We partied mm-hmm. and he was the lead football player, star football player and dating the captain of the cheerleading squad. So it like, it looked pitch, picture perfect. Yeah. I was hiding my drinking and my drug use from a very early age. And then after we got married, everything was supposed to be so perfect. Right. We bought a house. I got custody of my stepson who mm-hmm. was four when we Aww. got married and he became, oh, well, he, he was my little boy and my life revolved around how I could um, best prepare for him. Sorry, just a quick question. But if you said you got married when you were 19. And mm-hmm. how old was he? Because he came with a four-year-old boy already then. So he was or also. did he have the four-year-old in, did he have the child while he was in, in high school? Mm-hmm. He was 14 okay. when yeah. our son was born. Yeah. Wow. Very young. Which led to a lot of his drinking and using, but he was also, he still graduated high school. He had a full-time job and he was taking care of a newborn almost by himself. So, wow. yeah, he was pretty amazing. <laughs> almost our whole relationship was based around the getting and the using. And it got to a point where that was how I functioned. I started using scary amounts now that I look back at it every single night. And my day would look like I would get up and I'd take care of my kids. I'd get them off to school. I'd go to work. I'd come home and do dinner and play with the kiddos for a little bit. And then I'd take my handful of pain pills and get them to sleep. And then I would stay up and I would do the things that I thought a super mom did. Baking the cupcakes that got dropped on me last minute (laughs) for the party or deep cleaning my house. That was what I used those for energy. And it wasn't until... Mm, I was about 29 years old when it hit me that I might have a problem. And it was because I had been ordering my medications online from foreign countries. I was taking massive amounts, lethal doses. And I remember one night standing in my closet, because that's where I hid my stash, with a handful of pills going, I don't want to take this. I don't want to do this right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I actually kind of wanted to sleep, but then I was also, I knew what it was like to get pill sick and I didn't want to get pill sick. So that was that moment when I went, I might need some help. What does pill sick mean? Sorry. I haven't heard that term. <laughs> uh, it's just withdrawals. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It, it starts pretty quick and you do, you feel like you've got the flu only like yep. times 10. <laughs> Yep. Okay. Yeah. It's very quick too. Cause I, t- I took pills for quite a few years also. And by the time I went to bed at night and woke up in the morning, I was withdrawing. So I actually got to the point where I had to take a pill before I could get out of bed, lay there for an hour while it kicked in before I could even get up because I felt so fucking sick from being so hung over. And mm-hmm. yeah, my body was already withdrawing from eight hours of not having the pills. Yeah. It's pretty bad. It's a pretty bad situation. It is. it is bad and it's scary and it is painful. And your body gets to that point where you're like, you're getting sicker taking more, but you're getting sicker if you don't take any. And so you're just like in that really unstable ground of what do I even do? Right. Yeah. And I, I remember it was not long after that, that I was sitting in the living room with my mom, the minister, and, and I've lived with her off and on for my whole life. And I told her, there's something that I'm not telling you. There's a secret, but I'm not ready to tell you yet. Now that I look back at it, I was like, oh my gosh, that was a manipulation to the max. And it was like a semi sort of somewhat cry out for help. But I knew if I told her, I would have to stop. And I didn't want to stop. I just didn't want to keep going. (laughs) How awful that that Mm -hmm. feels. Mm-hmm. And then I met a man on a dating website. He looked perfect. 
on paper. Mm-hmm. His picture was him in his military uniform kissing his baby child. And he was a Christian man and all of these just wonderful things. We started dating. It would have been about three and a half years ago. And I was pretty good about hiding my addiction at that point, but we started this, we'd be talking at all hours of the night. And he started wondering if I wasn't on something. And I started wondering if he wasn't on something. Mm -hmm. And then we started talking about it and he was using meth and Mm -hmm. I was so against meth. Oh my gosh. I was so against it because that was the reason why my ex-husband and I got divorced He fell really heavy into his meth addiction and I wanted nothing of it. I lost my house. My son was taken away from me by his biological mom because my ex-husband went to rehab. I had to move like across the state (laughs) down to Southern Idaho to be able to get away from the death threats that were being left in my car because I wouldn't pay off his dealers. And uh, I, I lost everything. Mm. And I wanted nothing to do with it. But this guy who looked so perfect, I was like, that's not what my ex-husband did. He didn't do that on meth. So maybe this is different. Maybe it's not so bad. Mm. And when there, I, I had sold my pain pills to be able to get him his fix because I didn't want him to be sick. Didn't matter if I was going to be sick, but I didn't want him to be sick. Mm. And he said, try this. And so that was the first time that I ever smoked meth. And he was very controlling over that. Very controlling. He wouldn't let me hold my pipe or touch the bag or anything. He controlled when I did and how much I did. And the, yeah. Wow. Okay. Good Lord. That's pretty obvious that the relationship became very toxic very quickly. Mm. Uh, We started fighting all the time. And eventually it got physical and I was trying to hide that too, because I was working with the YWCA as an advocate. I helped women who were victims of domestic violence and sexual assault. And here I was in the situation where now I'm hooked on a drug that I have no control over and I'm being abused physically, emotionally, mentally, spiritually by a man that is supposed to be good for me <laughs> and it didn't take long. And he um, kind of went crazy on me one day and he tried to strangle me to death. He nearly succeeded and the cops got called. And finally that was, you know, there was some resolution there I got hauled off in an ambulance. I had soft tissue damage to my neck. My thyroid collapsed, bruises all over my body. And the only way that I knew how to cope with that was with copious amounts of drugs, Mm -hmm. copious amounts. So I called in every dealer that I knew and I got so loaded that I couldn't feel. Yeah. And it really took me on a scary path with that, that I called it my fuck it week, which turned into a fuck it month because I had people in my house that got me hooked in more ways than just the drugs. I I Mm -hmm. started dealing, of course, I'm hiding all of this from my mom and I'm suffering from agoraphobia and PTSD and panic attacks. And I was not comfortable no matter where I was. And so I left. Halloween night, I picked up my stuff and I just left. Walked out to the house? Yeah. Yeah. My mom and I got in a fight and I I took Mm -hmm. my daughter with me that time. Mm -hmm. We got in the car and drove up to Lewiston because that's where I knew I could get more. We slept in our car for a couple of nights because I couldn't go back. Tried to find some places for us to sleep. And then I realized that I couldn't keep my daughter out there, but I wasn't going to go back. Yeah. And so I dropped her off and I went back to Lewiston. I wasn't even really sure I was going to go back to Cami. I ever at that point. And this has only been a couple of weeks 
at this point. I was all yeah. really heavy into dealing. Of course, I was homeless. So if I had a place to stay, I was staying with people. Otherwise, I was sleeping in my car if I was sleeping. Mm-hmm. Uh, my daughter's birthday came up. And I remember sitting in the Walgreens parking lot because I had no money for gas and had no money to get her a birthday present. And I was sitting in the parking lot of Walgreens going, okay, I'm just going to go in. I'm just going to find her something. I'm going to walk out. I'm just going to take it. And I'm going to figure out a way to get gas so I can get there for her birthday. And I called mom and I was like, "I I just need some money for gas and I'll be there. And she said, maybe it's a better idea that you don't come home. And I, that hit me like a ton of bricks, but I knew she was right. I definitely knew she was right. I was sick. I was very sick. About a month later, I caught my first felony, grand theft by possession of a stolen vehicle. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Here's the kicker, though, is it was because I kept a rental car. My car had been stolen, so I had gotten a rental car and kept it 14 days past its due date because I was living in the car and I got arrested and there was of course a bunch of drugs and paraphernalia in the car but because I had a pretty good way of manipulating my way around the system they weren't able to tag me with any of it but I still served my first 14 days in jail and that was over Christmas I can appreciate what you said whisper about getting through the holidays. I, I will never forget the Christmas Eve that I spent in jail. I knew that my life had completely gone haywire. And actually it was that night. Um, I was so angry. I punched the wall in the jail. I broke my hand in two places. And because I was just not okay They put me in suicide watch for my first time. I spent the next seven days in suicide watch until they released me. Hmm. It was New Year's Eve. They released me. I didn't even have anybody to pick me up from the jail. So I walked from the top of the grade to the bottom of the grade to a gas station. And there was a lady there and I said, can I please use your phone? And so I got on Facebook and I found somebody that I could go over to. Of course, I just spent 14 days in jail. I had no other intentions other than to just get loaded. And so I went and found a place, got really drunk. And then because this place didn't have any dope, I left and continued walking. I walked another about two miles, about one thirty in the morning in my heels. The only clothes I had because my car and everything, all of my possessions were still in evidence. So I had, I had nothing other than the clothes on my back and I walked and I found one of my friend's trailers and I went and I said, Hey, do you have anything? And he says, all I have is what's in this needle. It's loaded. It's ready to use. And I went, give it to me. So that was my very first time with the needle and I got hooked bad. Once you use a needle, it, nothing else ever works ever again. You just have to have it with the needle. And it escalated really quickly after that. Even I caught another felony. I got caught with paraphernalia and they tried to tag me with 2.5 ounces of liquid methamphetamine because I had some water in my purse that I had used to mix with. They let me out on probation. I didn't last long. Got arrested. I think it was, there was three more times after that. I had warrant after warrant for not showing up to court and not doing what I was supposed to do on probation. On July 16th, they arrested me. And July 17th of 2019 is my clean date. That was the day that I decided I was not going to do it anymore. Hmm. The day they arrested me, I was suicidal. I had gone up in the hills behind the casino in Lewiston with every intention of slitting my wrist with my boyfriend's knife. When I saw that the cops had been called, I sat for about an hour and a half and watched the cops look for me. I was sitting up in a hidden spot. And I thought, well, I can't do it because they'll find me before I die. Oh. And 
Yeah. So again, I was put on suicide watch this time. They didn't give me even clothes. I was put in what they call a turtle suit. It's basically a blanket that you can't rip with Velcro that wraps around you. And then there's the suicide blanket. So you can't suffocate yourself with it. You can't rip it. It puts you in a little room with nothing but that and a Bible. Mm. And... Yeah, that's what saved my life. Hmm. How long were you locked up at this point? How long did you stay? Well, that oh, how time, long did you stay in? Sorry, I should have that, that time I was so I did what's called a rider, which is six to nine months, depending on how quickly you can get through the programming. I was in from July until February. Okay. I think it was about seven months. Wow. wow. I'm a mom. So my first question is, how's it going with your kids? Do you, do you have them? What's your situation with them right now? My stepson, who is now almost 18, he still is not talking to me. And I've had to give him that space to not be okay, mm-hmm. uh, which is hard. It's hard. I want to just wrap him up and tell him all of these things. But he was really hurt. Because he watched his dad go down that road with meth and then he got taken away from me. And I promised that I would never do that. And Mm. then here I am going to prison because of it. So he's very hurt. But my daughter, she's nine years old and she was able to reconnect with me about a month after I got out of prison. I was living in an Oxford house. And the beautiful thing about Oxford, it's a transitional house, sober living, and it was a women and children's house. And so Mm -hmm. I was given the opportunity to move her in with me. But (laughs) this is funny how the pandemic blessed me is the stay at home order happened about a month after I uh, was released from prison. And so I panicked. Mm -hmm. I had just bought my car, by the way, with cash. That I legally, (laughs) first car I ever owned. And this is the first car I've ever had a title in, in my name. (laughs) And so I bought bought my car and I said, there's no way. I don't know how long that everything is going to be shut down. I'm not going to leave my mom taking care of my daughter by herself. And so we agreed that I would come and stay with her for this stay at home order. And so we, 21 days of us being here, just reconnecting and rebuilding and healing in our relationships. My mom got to see me do a Zoom meeting for <laughs> you know, my 12-step programs every single night oh, because wow. that's what I had to do when I first got out. And she got to see me calling my sponsor every day and the progress that I was making and all of that. And so when it was time to go back to Oxford, mom said, well, I think you're good. Take Maylee. You're doing good. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. I will also say on her too, of course, she experienced a lot of trauma while I was hauling her around from place to place when we were living in Lewiston or living in Lewiston. She's also the reason that I'm alive today. When Michael was strangling me, she heard what was going on and she came to the door and she screamed and that made him stop. And I asked her, I said, Maylee, because we had had this plan. I knew it was coming. I said, if he ever gets scary violent, you go to every door in the neighborhood and knock until you find somebody and get help. And it wasn't because I knew that she'd be able to get help there. It was because I didn't want her in the house when he killed me. And so in the ambulance ride, I said, Maylee, why didn't you run? Uh, She said, mommy, he would have killed you if I ran. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So my little powerhouse of a baby girl. (laughs) took me a long time to both get over that and to appreciate it for what it was is, mm-hmm. you know, I thought, Oh, what a horrible mother I am for putting my daughter in this situation. And my five-year-old daughter felt like she had to save me. Yeah. And then somebody pointed out to me that it wasn't that she had to save me is that she got to save me. 
<laughs> and that she felt like a superhero that day. And, you know, what a powerful message to her that, you know, she was blessed with the opportunity, even though it was scary, she got to be brave and she mm-hmm. got to stand up for me. And because of that, we're here today. Well, that's something. So you said uh, 2019 in July is your? Yes. You, Seven, you 17, 19. <laughs> Wow, congratulations. I know it can be a struggle probably every day, but yeah, you're here. You're telling your story. (laughs) (laughs) Jemima and I have been through a lot ourselves. We do a lot of keeping ourselves trauma-informed and everything like that, plus Mm -hmm. what we've ourselves gone through. We understand in a very deep way, as I'm sure you do as well, that, that it's not about the addiction. It's not about the thing that you're getting. It's about the pain that you're covering Mm up. But for somebody that like maybe hasn't ever walk down that road, I can almost hear people say like, how could a mother do that? And not at all. Please don't feel bad. But what was that kind of like in the in-between times? Because like you said, you didn't want to go back, but you didn't want to go forward. How much of your inner dialogue was having to do with the stuff you're dealing with and then this, what you're dealing with as a mom? Oh, anybody who I used with when I was homeless on the streets and dealing and all of that knew how much I thought about and talked about my daughter and how deeply I was hurt. I cried all the time, even though I was bouncing from place to place. And there was a Mm -hmm. lot of nights I slept on the streets. There was a box of stuff of toys that I had collected and clothes that I had collected for her and books that I had wanted to read. And that moved with me. And I beat some asses for uh, people who tried to go through my box of my daughter's stuff. But there was a part of me too, that in November 24th of 2018 was the last time I had seen her and it, for a long time. And when I dropped her off that night, I knew that was probably going to be the last time I saw her because I just wanted to die. If I couldn't be with my daughter and I couldn't be safe and sane for her, I didn't want to be anymore. She's my life. I did a lot of things after that to just driving 140, 150 miles per hour on the river road in December. Just, I just just wanted to die. But then there was that part of me that was like, but what is my daughter going to think? What is that going to do to my mom and my everybody who loves me? And I knew that what they were going through was painful because I was going through pain. My mom not knowing where I was and me not talking to her, but. There was still that part of me that was like, man, if they knew what I was doing right now, the pain that they would be in. And so it was just this like super rocky and scary place that I don't want to die, but I don't want to live, but I don't want to get help, but I I can't do it. I can't, you know, so it was almost easier to just stay numb. Yeah. 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 And and that's when it got, when it got to that, okay, I can't die. So I'm just going to numb myself. And trust me, the situations I was putting myself in, I should have died several times. I have overamped. I had to have people carry me naked through a trap house because I had overamped in a bathtub. (laughs) (laughs) Overamp is the equivalent of overdosing on meth. It's you use so much that your temperature rises, your heart rate increases to the point where it overloads itself. You pass out, your blood pressure sky high, and it's scary. I'm glad that there were people there that recognized that if I had continued to stay in the tub, I would have died because my body temperature was so high. Uh, The drug life itself is scary. Yeah, I imagine. <laughs> it is. Dealing with people with a lot of guns and bad attitudes and drugs, and that doesn't mix. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the seedy underbelly of the world. It's right down there. But yeah, yeah, it's definitely, it's always scary, especially when you're dealing with meth. To me, at least. The pills, I got them from pretty nice houses and pretty nice people, but... <laughs> 
man, when I was doing meth, no, that was not the same situation at all. Fuck. Mm. Yeah, I, I was, yeah. I put myself in terrible situations like that too. And I totally understand that feeling of, I don't want to live. I don't want to die. I just want to be numb to everything because I can't do anything else. That's pretty much how I felt for a long time. Mm. Yeah. And now you work with a recovery center, right? I do. <laughs> I am one Amazing. step away from being a state certified peer recovery coach. Wow. Oh, yeah. wow. And, uh, if you would have asked me what I wanted to do with my life when I got out of prison, I would not have guessed that I was going to be a recovery coach. Because when I got out and I really just dove in, the very first thing I did when I got released from prison, the very first thing I did was I went into First Step, the um, recovery center that I now work for. Hmm. And they gave me a bag of hygiene items, some food, some clothes, and a ride up to the Oxford house and set me up with a recovery coach. And then the very next thing I did I went to a meeting Hmm. and I found my love and my fire for recovery in the rooms. And then I just, I kept diving into it. And the more I got into it, the more I fell in love. And the more I started realizing that recovery offers me a life that I never could have imagined for myself. Before, before I really got heavy into drugs, I was a CNA. I was a bank teller. I owned a daycare. I was a pharmacy tech. I worked in a state hospital. (laughs) I was a server. You name it. I've probably done it. And I never really found my passion until I hit the need for recovery. And now here I am. And I'm in love. I am in love with my job. I'm in love with my life. It's fantastic. (laughs) It's beautiful. Yeah, that really is. It's fantastic. And didn't you also meet, isn't your partner also an ex-user also? He is. Yep. We met in the rooms. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Some people would say that I 13th stepped him, which is a thing. (laughs) (laughs) The 13th step is finding you a somebody who's new in recovery that doesn't know any better. Um. (laughs) That's funny. Yeah. But in all fairness, he does have more clean time than I do. His clean date is of uh, May 12th of 2019 and mine is July 17th. So he's got me beat by a couple of months. <laughs> That's amazing. Like you you've done more work in your life to now than a lot of people have done in three or four. So it's really commendable and really amazing. And it's this kind of funny thing. I know sometimes when I want to talk about something that goes a little bit deeper than just the small talk. And there's this pull between knowing that no matter what you say to someone, if they haven't walked that road in some way, that there's just going to be a part that they don't get. Mm-hmm. And yet at the same time, those are also the people you want to know. <laughs> you want them to know just how insanely strong you have to be to wake right. up every single day and choose your better you. you know, that's something that in this job I've come to really appreciate is mm-hmm. how I get to be a part of ending stigma. There's so much uh-huh. stigma around the language of addiction yeah, And I struggle sometimes because it's a learning curve. I don't refer myself as an addict. I consider mm-hmm. myself to be a person in recovery. I never say that I'm clean because I don't consider that I was ever dirty. The wording is powerful. The words are really important. Absolutely. I agree with you on that. I have a daily mantra of change your language because <laughs> hmm. I have to be the one to change my language. And it's so important because nothing changes if nothing changes. And the, we've recognized that addiction is killing people. But there was over 100,000 deaths by overdose in the United States between June of 2020 and June of 2021. Over 100,000. And now we're just starting to get it that this is a public health crisis Mm -hmm. more than it is a behavioral health crisis. 
And what it's going to take is the community wrapping their heads around this idea that, you know, just because a person uses drugs doesn't make them a dirty person. It mm-hmm. means they're sick and they need just as much medical care as the person who's got diabetes. Because yeah. there's just as much upkeep with addiction as a disease as there is with mm. diabetes as a disease. Yeah, that's, yeah. We've had those conversations of that, the silent sicknesses that come. That's really wonderful. So I have a question for you, though, because this is something I... I bet you'd be a good person to tell me this. I've actually only ever had an experience once with somebody who was living in recovery. I dated them. And that was a, uh, it's a quite interesting story because when I met them, I didn't know that they were on a bender. They had fallen off the wagon for the first time in 19 years. And I had no idea. I thought they were just, anyways. So that was a journey. But there was this interesting piece that ended up disconnecting us in, in a really big way. So there are lots of other ways, but this one piece that kind of got disconnected. And I, I know that everyone takes what they need from whatever program you're in, whatever situation you're in. But um, what I learned with this person is there's a lot of people in these meetings that don't even associate with anybody outside of whoever they know in meetings they walk that extreme road of nobody else we can be in contact with because that would possibly bring me down and I've not been there so I wouldn't know even what that means exactly but like you said we're ending the stigma we want to love people who struggle with this we want to help people who struggle with this so what piece is that there for when when you start going out into the world that gets scarier the world that has the pain or the world that has that problem? First off, everybody has to work their own program. So for the people who are in, you know, these recovery, if for however long they need to just focus on people who are in recovery, just to be able to have that connection with another human Mm -hmm. being, that's not me, (laughs) but I can understand (laughs) it. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And at the end of the day, as far as with me, this other person, they needed to do what they needed to do to heal. And so I support them in every way in in doing that. But I will not lie. I had no clue, like even how to even have conversations anymore. There was so much of the unknown for me. There was also a lot of things that I wouldn't have chosen for myself. And yeah, I hit a brick wall a lot of times, even trying to have conversations that interests me because we want to make a world safe for people. (laughs) We want to make a world that's okay for people to be in trauma. That's okay for people to be hurting. That's okay for people to say, I'm not okay. And Mm -hmm. the more you can interact with people that are dealing with their own struggles, their own sicknesses, like I think, the more that's going to help all of us be able to understand how to communicate with each other. So mm-hmm. yeah, hence my question. Part of what I do as a recovery coach is I help people build what's called recovery capital. So recovery hmm. capital is the support groups that you have built behind you. It's your support system and, and branching off into that support system. On who do I call when I'm triggered? Who do Sorry. I call when I'm sad? Okay. Who do I call when I'm lonely? And so there's, it's just this like, foundation that we can build on knowing that there's this recovery capital. And so for me, because I can only Mm -hmm. speak for me as a person in recovery, I had to get very comfortable with talking about my addiction. Like Mm -hmm. my mom had a lot of questions. My daughter had a lot of questions. I actually just got back from my grandmother's funeral about a month ago. There was one night they all had alcoholic beverages in their hand because that's a normal thing to do. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But they're like, you can't even have a glass of wine. And I'm like, no, I can't. Because so I had to get really open and really vulnerable with how I was going to explain this to my family. And Mm -hmm. I had to adopt this policy of honesty, (laughs) brutal honesty, (laughs) that if somebody asks me something, I'm not going to dance around the question. Whether (laughs) you like the answer or not, you're gonna get it. (laughs) Oh my gosh, thank you. But I had to be open and vulnerable to that too. I'm giving you permission to ask me what it is you need to ask me. And then I've got to be brave enough to give the answers. And I think that's a piece that a lot of people in recovery are missing because they're so afraid of what people are going to think about them because of the things that they did. 
what I did is a part of who I was. And it's something I can look back at to remind myself of who I'm never going to be again. But I am blessed with this opportunity to have a clean slate every morning when I open my eyes. And I want people in the way to look at it. (laughs) I want people to understand that they get to know me for Mm -hmm. the first time. This community gets to know me as the person that I love and the person that I'm growing to be. That's something that I didn't get to give my community or my family members or anybody I loved because I was hiding behind this mask of I'm pretending to be okay, but I'm not okay because I'm hiding this really big part of me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there's also this realistic side to this, which sometimes gets forgotten in all the self-help jargon that flows around all the time of just be yourself. Everyone will love you if you just be yourself. That's actually not true. Mm. (laughs) And just be honest and everyone will accept you as who you were and not hold your past against you. That's also not true (laughs) because 100% of the people, 100% of the time are not going to do that. And when you say you have to get comfortable around talking about your addiction, I imagine part of that was also just comfortable knowing that people are going to judge you anyways. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. It's almost empowering knowing, (laughs) (laughs) and maybe this is just me starting to find my sass again. When somebody wants to call me out for being an addict, I just, I, Get, I bring my sass on and it's, yeah, uh, here's what I'm doing to help myself and my family and my loved ones. Can you say the same thing? I'm working on me. I am doing a, a fearless and moral inventory of myself. Yeah, How many sure. people alive can say that they've done that for where sure. they identify every resentment they've ever had in their entire life and then also identify mm-hmm. my role in it? Yeah. There's not a whole lot of people that have done the work that that people who are in recovery get to do. We do um, it because we don't want to be stuck in our addiction anymore. mm -hmm. But it just makes us into these, this whole other rounded type of person. Yeah. You have to get fearless Yeah, (laughs) because you got to look at yourself every day in the mirror. I'm sure you've noticed this as I've noticed it when I'm in these situations and I'm like, Oh no, I don't drink. All of a sudden everyone in in the situation, they start talking about why Maybe they should start having these conversations of like, yeah, actually, maybe I do drink too much or maybe I use this too much or whatever it is. So even if you do know that there's going to be people that judge you, a lot of times it might just be because they're judging themselves. We say we want to numb the pain because that's a safe space. It definitely is a safe space, but you also don't want to live numb. So like most people, no matter what place they're in, are looking for some sort of relief from their pain but don't want to be numb. And so you can start having those conversations with people about that. Mm -hmm. Connection is such an important part in Mm -hmm. recovery, having something to connect to. Like you had your daughter, Mm -hmm. right? Like, you know, I have to do this because I have this wee little human that's depending on me Mm -hmm. for life. So I have to get out of this cycle that I'm in and become the person that I need to be. Mm-hmm. And I think that a lot of us tend to, instead of connecting with addicts, we just judge them mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. set them aside as, oh, well, you're just a meth addict or you're just a crackhead or you're just a this. And mm-hmm. oh my goodness, how could you ever be like that? What a horrible situation. Wow, I would never do that. <laughs> it's easy to do. It's easy mm-hmm. to do. Uh-huh. Even me as an ex-meth head, I've been judgmental like that. I got clean. Why can't you just get clean too? But that can be the feeling that you have sometimes. Mm, and right. you just have to realize that everybody's just looking for connection. That's a lot of reasons why a lot of people use drugs is because it's a connection that you can make mm-hmm. every single time. You know exactly what's going to happen, exactly how you're going to feel. And really, it's mm. just you're just connecting with the drug instead of something more healthy okay because there's not risk involved yeah gotcha right yeah that makes sense okay yeah because Uh every time i know every time i went to get high was because i knew exactly how i was i wanted to feel a certain way and that is what is going to make me feel that way so that's what i'm going to do 
Mm-hmm. And then like yeah. with me and I, I, I got to the point where I was smoking like every 30 minutes because after 30 minutes, the initial euphoria wears off and you're still high for like 10 hours, but you don't feel the same as you did when you smoked 30 minutes ago. So you're like, okay, that's gone. Now I need to go get that back. So here I go again. <laughs> and then it just, it goes down the tubes really fast. <laughs> At least for me, it did. I was like, I can control this. I can just keep this under control. I'll just take enough pills so I can work. I'll just do enough meth so I can have energy. I'll just do this and I'll just do that. And I've got it all under control. And then until you don't, until mm-hmm. you don't. Mm-hmm. At first, it was the same with me and pain pills. It was just like, oh, my knee hurts. My shoulder hurts. I have to go waitress. I need to be nice to people. Pop a couple <laughs> pills. Real easy peasy. No problem. And then it was like, oh, I'll just take them while, I, while I'm at work. Then on my days off, I started to withdraw. And I was mm-hmm. like, what the fuck is wrong with me? How come I feel so sick all the time? So what did I start to do? I started taking pills on my days off, too. Next thing you know, you're in this vicious cycle and you're just like, oh shit. Yeah. <laughs> okay, now I need more. Okay, that that 40 milligrams of Percocet wasn't quite doing the trick anymore. So now I'm gonna up it to 60. Mm. And then, like you said, next thing you're taking lethal doses just to feel something, yeah. some kind of happiness, really. A lot of that mm. is just because those drugs bring like a euphoria, and you're just mm-hmm. like, oh, let's go, yeah. <laughs> but we have to learn to find our you know, euphoria without that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's possible. Like now for me, I light up when I go on a walk or go to the hot springs <laughs> or go take a walk in the forest. I mean, I'm sure you found things too that really get you going. Like mm-hmm. everybody has to just find something that can make them feel that same happiness and joy or whatever it is that you're looking for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I heard someone say something that was really great that stuck with me. I heard it a couple of days ago that was make it your reason, not your excuse. Mm-hmm. That's really an interesting way to look at things because maybe someone is feeling that they don't have a reason, but there's always something that you can do to start looking at things from an, another side. So I, don't know, I, love I like that, that quote. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Yeah. I also have fibromyalgia. So oh, I wow. live in chronic pain <laughs> every single day. And, you know, because of the fact that I, I took pills for so long, I don't allow myself to take anything narcotic. I I don't even use CBD or anything that was probably okay. But that's just because there's a part of me that went, I used my fibromyalgia as an excuse for so long to just keep getting the pills and to, to keep doing this and keep doing that, that now it gets to be my strength. In a really Mm -hmm. weird way, because I get to wake up every morning and stretch my body and feel sometimes it hurts, (laughs) but sometimes it feels really good. Just being able to feel the things that were so numb for so long is a gift. And yeah, I go to bed dog tired at the end of the day. And of course, the sobriety comes a little bit of weight gain. But even that just recently, I've started a journey um, where I'm doing yoga twice a day and drinking Mm. a gallon of water and practicing meditation and mindfulness. And I'm at peace again. My life can get so frenzied. And I'm finally just, oh, (laughs) I'm also have bipolar too. I don't know if I ever mentioned that. Let's just keep tacking those on. Yeah. Yeah. So so practicing mindfulness and being able to meditate and Mm -hmm. these are such helpful tools that I had no idea were even a thing when I was Mm -hmm. using. Yes. I totally agree with you. Meditation Mm -hmm. is really a a way to find peace. It's quite Mm -hmm. amazing actually. Yeah. And I fought it for a long time because I just like, no, no, that's just not for me. It's not for me. And then I was like, okay, fine, I'll try it. And I was like, oh, actually, this is pretty good. And the mindfulness thing too, that's really, it's a big thing. It's a big thing. Mm -hmm. I still find myself just be where you are. That's basically Mm -hmm. what mindfulness is, right? Mm -hmm. If you're at work, be at work. If you're at home, be at home. If you're with your kid, be with your kid. Don't be off somewhere else in your mind tripping about what I'm going to do later or what I'm going to do tomorrow or what's going to happen then or what's going to happen then. It's like, just be in your body and be where you are. Mm. And I think everybody can build a life that they can be happy with. 
Mm-hmm. But it takes effort. Absolutely. It is <laughs> hard today. <laughs> yeah. And but like people building a life that that they're happy and it doesn't necessarily always have to be like a party bus because there are people that deal with the realities of trauma or any other physical sickness or things like that. And so I think the key in those places, like you said, Jemima, about being in there in the moment is just looking at being what you can be, especially in this day and age, TikTok, Instagram, it's everywhere. And people are thinking like, oh, he just picked up a guitar and suddenly this this uh, record found him and boom, he got his life. And it makes it can make you feel like there's constantly this unattainable goal that you're supposed to be going towards. Sometimes when I tell myself I want to make a life that's better for me, that doesn't always necessarily mean that's more like that's more money or more praise or more. That's not necessarily what that is. It's not easy sometimes because you want someone to look at you and say, oh my God, you're amazing. That's That shouldn't be the motivating factor that drives your life, of course. I always tell my boyfriend and, and my daughter that mm-hmm. my goal is to just be the best version of me that I can mm-hmm. be. Because yep. I can't be anybody else, but right. I can give my best as often as I can. And some days my best looks like a hundred percent and some days my best looks like 30%. But as long as I'm giving my best, that's all I can do. Yes, absolutely. Totally agree. 100%. That's what I always say. Just do your best. Just do your best. As long as you're doing your best, that's all you can do. And don't think your best is the same as somebody else's best because Mm -hmm. it might not be. Just because somebody else has fibromyalgia and they go up and do this every day doesn't mean that you have to do that. You're you. And I think it's hard for us sometimes to just be ourselves. It's so easy to look at what other people have or what other people are. I think authenticity and just being who you are is the most beautiful thing you can do. Yeah. People see that. People see the authenticity and the realness of your life and the openness of who you are. and to me, that's admirable. I know for me, a lot of the times why I'm trying to do something that's like that I'm ending up discouraging myself about, it's often, it's not something that I might want to do or a goal that I might want to reach. It's what I think everybody else wants me to reach or what Mm -hmm. I think what everybody else is. And I'm a fan of Brene Brown and I've read some of her books and she harps on that a lot. Can we stop looking at each other judgmentally? And maybe some of that relief is going to (laughs) come. Look at each other compassionately instead of Mm -hmm. judgmentally. Mm -hmm. Yes. And always realize that little bump on the surface probably goes way deeper than you realize. <laughs> well, this has been awesome, Ashley. Thank you so much for yeah, Ashley. Thank your you so much. Story and that's amazing. <laughs> you you are an incredible warrior, and every day that we spend <laughs> on this side of the boat is a good day, right? Absolutely. Yes. I'm very thankful you're both here and I'm thankful I'm here. Yeah, I really appreciate you letting us ask these difficult questions. And thank you for being so vulnerable with all of us so that we can learn a little bit about ourselves. (laughs) Exactly. Yes, I guess we'll end this like we always do. Stay brave (laughs) and remember that every butterfly was once a caterpillar.